Welcome to Skim This. The Supreme Court is about to head out on summer vacation, but they've got to release some bombshell decisions before they go. And no, we still haven't gotten that decision we're all waiting for about abortion rights, but there are plenty of other cases to go through. We're asking a legal expert to break down a controversial new Second Amendment ruling and how it could impact the city or state where you live. Also on the show, we've got a new segment for you, where you ask and we answer all your questions about work. And this week, we're diving right in to figure out whether employees are about to lose all the leverage they've gained over the past two years. And speaking of work, we're ending the show by telling you about some companies that are giving business trips another meaning. Yes, we're talking about psychedelics. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. Let's start with some headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. And it's been a busy week in D.C., so our first few headlines are straight from the nation's capital. First up, let's talk about the January 6th public hearings. We've almost made it through the scheduled January 6th hearings on Capitol Hill, and we've learned a lot since they started in early June. Over the past two weeks, the House committee, made up of seven Democrats and two Republicans, has laid out its case for how former President Donald Trump tried to disrupt the peaceful transfer of power and was in some way responsible for the attack on the Capitol last year. And it's important to note, this wasn't your typical Capitol Hill hearing, which is usually full of partisan interruptions and Democrats and Republicans strongly disagreeing with one another. Rather, throughout this hearing, the House committee presented a united front and an uninterrupted narrative. And if you didn't get to tune in, here are four key takeaways. First, President Trump was told by a lot of people in his inner circle, from his former attorney general to his former White House attorney, that his claims about a stolen election were bogus. But despite those warnings, Trump kept pushing his lie. Here's some testimony from former White House attorney Eric Hirschman. I said, you're completely crazy. I said, you're going to turn around and tell 78 plus million people in this country that your theory is this is how you're going to invalidate their votes because you think the election was stolen. And I said, they're not going to tolerate that. I said, you're going to cause riots in the streets. The second thing we learned was that even though some of Trump's nearest and dearest told him he was wrong, his fraudulent election claims wouldn't have spread without the help of GOP legislators. And the committee had the receipts. A staffer for Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson texted a staffer for Vice President Pence just minutes before the beginning of the joint session. The texts in question show us that Johnson's staffer asked if it was okay for the senator to hand off fake pro-Trump elector votes to VP Mike Pence just before he was set to count them. The third thing to know is that some of the people who came out strongest against the former president's actions were conservatives from his own party. Here's Representative Rusty Bowers from Arizona, 
who was pressured to tamper with the outcome of his state's election. You're asking me to do something against my oath, and I will not break my oath. Another conservative who was also not down to disrupt the peaceful transfer of power was Trump's own Vice President Mike Pence, who conferred with attorneys and judges in the days leading up to January 6 to confirm that he couldn't change the election outcome. Some analysts have even said that if Mike Pence didn't do what he did and accept the real election results, the U.S. would be in the middle of a constitutional crisis right now. The final thing we learned from the hearings is that Team Trump, despite resistance from some conservatives and Trump's inner circle, still put hardcore pressure on election officials and the Department of Justice. And that pressure led to threats of violence against election workers. This week, some of those workers testified how the 2020 election scarred them. They've been harassed and threatened all because they were just doing their job. Here's a Georgia election worker who testified about the backlash she's faced from the false election campaign. I felt horrible for picking this job and being the one that always wants to help and always there, never missing out one election. I just felt like it was, it was my fault for putting my family in this situation. And that's a wrap on this month's January 6 hearings. The committee is set to reconvene in July. All right, next headline. By suspending the 18 cent gas tax, federal gas tax, for the next 90 days, we can bring down the price of gas and give families just a little bit of relief. That was President Biden pleading to Congress on Wednesday. Here's what he's asking for. When it comes to America's high gas prices, Biden's kind of been throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks. From releasing strategic oil reserves to asking major oil companies to ramp up production, it seems like he's willing to try anything to reduce gas prices for Americans. And this week, President Biden asked Congress to pump the brakes on the federal gas tax for three months, meaning drivers would stop paying the federal tax on gas when they went to the pump. If Congress decides to take action, drivers would save about 18 cents per gallon during peak driving season. But there are some people who aren't too excited about this move. Some economists and politicians worry that this break could just benefit oil companies rather than consumers, and that lowering prices without actually increasing supply sends a signal to drivers that it's okay to consume more oil, which the U.S. doesn't really have right now. On top of that, economists are also skeptical of putting more money in people's wallets right now, since that encourages people to spend and could make the inflation problem even worse. So all things considered, it sounds like Team Biden won't be driving off into the sunset with this proposal. All right, here's another headline from D.C. A group of senators reaching a deal on a package of measures that both sides say will save lives. On Tuesday, after nine days of talks, we got the deets on the bipartisan Senate bill on gun safety. Fourteen Republican senators joined all 50 Democrats in a procedural vote to push this bill forward. So what did they agree on? This bill would expand background checks to gun buyers under the age of 21 and would offer federal cash incentives to states that have red flag laws and other crisis intervention programs. It would also close a loophole that allows romantic partners convicted of domestic violence from purchasing guns. 
Still, while this marks a major victory for bipartisanship, some people still believe it doesn't go far enough. Because the bill doesn't include a universal background check system or a ban on assault-style weapons. All this action on gun control comes as we've learned more about the law enforcement response to the deadly massacre in Uvalde last month. At a Texas state Senate hearing this week, a top Texas law enforcement official revealed that officers on the scene at Robb Elementary were equipped to stop the shooter within three minutes after the massacre began. Instead, it took them over an hour. The officers had weapons. The children had none. The officers had body armor. The children had none. We also learned that doors to get into the school and the classroom that the shooter entered were not locked, which contradicted what local police had said earlier about why they delayed confrontation with the gunman. Just a day after the hearing, the school district placed Uvalde's chief of police on leave. And as the police department continues to take heat from a grieving community, gun reform advocates are crossing their fingers that the bipartisan gun deal will pass on the Senate floor, which could happen as soon as next week, before the Senate's July 4th recess. And if that happens, it'll mark the first major gun reform legislation passed in decades. We're going to go abroad for our final headline. Early on Wednesday, a nearly 6.0 magnitude earthquake struck the southeastern part of Afghanistan, killing more than 1,000 people and leaving even more injured or trapped under the rubble. It was the country's deadliest earthquake in two decades. Now, the search for survivors and victims is underway, and officials say the death toll is likely to rise. Because with heavy rain, rugged terrain, and a lack of resources, the rescue mission to find those who survived has been difficult. Recovering from the earthquake's devastation will be yet another test for the Taliban government, which took over the country last year. Afghanistan has since faced a hunger crisis and economic woes, and rebuilding from this latest natural disaster will be another hardship for the Afghan people. The Supreme Court is about to head out on summer break. But before they hit the beach, or the library, or whatever it is they do with their out-of-office time, they've got to release their decisions from all the cases they heard this year. And while we're all still waiting on one major decision coming out about abortion rights, which we should be getting any day now, the Supremes have already released a ton of other decisions on everything from criminal justice to guns to religion. Here to help us break down what else was on their docket is Caroline Polisi, a lecturer in law at Columbia University and a friend of the show. So Caroline, we want to talk to you about a few non-Roe related cases that the Supreme Court already heard and already decided on. One that made headlines this week was about the main education system. Can you break down the ruling and why people were paying attention to it? Yes, absolutely. Carson v. Macon. So this is part and parcel of, I would say, an overall shift in the Supreme Court. We've talked about this conservative supermajority. In this context, it's fundamental 
push and pull between the First Amendment's Establishment Clause and the free exercise of religion. Here, the court is basically saying that Maine can't exclude religious schools from one of its programs that offers tuition aid for private education. There are some very rural parts of Maine where students can't get to local public schools. And so Maine offers this policy by which those students receive funding and they can then choose to send their child to private schools. However, there is what's known as the non-sectarian requirement, meaning that Maine will only give parents this money for the parents to choose to send their children to non-sectarian schools. Well, there are parents that would like to use the money for schools that offer a religious education to their children. And the Supreme Court has now said that not allowing those parents to have that money essentially discriminates on the basis of religion, violates those parents' free exercise rights, and that there's essentially a workaround. The court is saying is the money is actually going to the parents who are then choosing to give the money to a religious organization. Therefore, it doesn't violate the Establishment Clause. I think a lot of us in high school or middle school learned about the separation between church and state and how that was a big part of our Constitution. But it seems like this court keeps ruling in favor of religious liberties. I'm curious how people are thinking about whether this kind of case will have a ripple effect or how far this court will go in favor of religious liberties. Justice Sotomayor delivered a scathing dissent in this case, basically saying that this court has and continues to dismantle this separation between church and state that our framers really fought to build into the Constitution. And she's spot on in noting the pattern that has evolved. The court, time and time again, is really going in the direction of the supremacy of the free exercise clause over the separation of church and state and the Establishment Clause, which would prohibit government funding to religious organizations. Caroline, there's another ruling I want to talk about that came out on Thursday about a gun law from New York State. And the Supreme Court just struck down a law that limited guns in public in New York. And it seems like this is going to have far-reaching implications, especially in urban areas where officials have tried to curb gun violence. And now people can carry guns, it seems, in more public places. Can you walk me through this case and why people are saying this is a huge decision? So it absolutely will have far-reaching consequences. And indeed, that's exactly why the Supreme Court took this case up. Remember, they don't decide cases in a vacuum. Clearly, they had something to say about the expansion of the Second Amendment and its jurisprudence. And, you know, really no surprises today. A 6-3, again, super conservative majority decision here. Thomas writing the opinion of the court. And the writing was on the wall from oral argument, I think. This, you know, nobody's surprised. However, lawmakers, Governor Hochul specifically, is very upset and shocked that the court, as she's noted, has taken away New York's right to have reasonable restrictions on where people can carry guns. The case, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, it challenges the constitutionality of a New York law, which basically requires a showing of proper cause for a concealed carry. And the law says that you need a sort of a heightened standard in order to carry a gun outside the home, not just that you want it for self-defense, but you have to have better showing than that. And the, the court is saying 
no, you, you don't have to, based on the Second Amendment and really 14th Amendment grounds, of course, the question now is, what are the farther reaching implications? Alito wrote a concurrence sort of aimed at, I think, people that will be asking exactly this question. He wrote a concurrence noting, you know, the holding today, it says nothing about who can lawfully possess a gun or the requirements that must be met to buy a gun or what kinds of guns people can buy, obviously speaking to the broader issues at play in Congress today, talking about red flag laws, background checks, things like that. You know, according to this opinion, he notes those things are still fair game. Again, we talk a lot about sort of the Supreme Court wanting to make really narrow holdings. And here it is a narrow holding. However, it is a huge expansion of the Second Amendment jurisprudence that we have in our country today. And it's really quite, quite remarkable, quite upsetting to a lot of people, given what's been going on uh, in the country today. You know, from reading about this, it seems like this won't just impact New York and that six other states have a law that was similar to the one the Supreme Court just struck down. Do those states have any options left around what they can do about gun safety in public places? Well, absolutely. And this was one of the issues that New York Solicitor General Barbara Underwood argued during oral arguments that for centuries in both English and American laws, they've imposed limits on carrying guns in public for public safety, right? There's this balancing of power. And there was a lot of talk in this opinion and in, in the, the brief submitted in this case about what sensitive places were and how and when legislatures could go about regulating where people can carry guns outside of the home, right? So, uh, you know, it has been framed as your right to carry a gun outside of the home, but are there places then that have sort of a heightened level of input in terms of when states can can regulate? And so that's when we got this discussion around university campuses, subways, courthouses, things of that nature. These laws in other states are absolutely on the chopping block now, and it's going to be up to the legislatures to try to work around this in terms of placing restrictions on, again, how you can lawfully possess a gun, what the requirements are going to be in terms of background checks, what types of red flag laws can go into effect, things like that. Because now we're seeing that the place restrictions are, are not going to be upheld. Caroline, thank you so much. Of course. Thanks for having me, Alex. Across the pond in the UK, it took some people way longer than expected to get to work this week because rail workers across the country walked off the job. All aboard! As we break down why rail workers went on strike this week, and what this means for Britain's Prime Minister, all in 60 seconds. For people in the UK looking to go on a quick local vacation, or even just to the office, good luck with that. This week, tens of thousands of rail workers went on strike in the biggest walkout the UK has seen in three decades. Almost 40,000 maintenance workers, station staff, and signalers said see ya after talks for pay increases with rail providers dissolved at the beginning of the week. According to the union representing the workers, negotiations were focused on pay increases, improvement of working conditions, and better job security. 
And these strikes have brought business to a standstill in London. Usually bustling train platforms and coffee shops are empty, and commuters have had to use alternate modes of transportation to get out of the city and around town. We should also point out, this strike isn't just impacting when people show up to their 9 to 5. It's also expected to hurt attendance for the UK's iconic Glastonbury Music Festival, which opened on Wednesday. This year, the festival was expecting 200,000 people to travel out to Somerset to attend. But now, more than half of the trains that were meant to transport guests have been canceled. Better hope they had refundable tickets. And while this strike has already caused headaches around the UK, it's about to be a very long summer for the country. Because it's not just rail workers who are about to walk out. Other labor organizing groups in the country are also in talks to strike this summer, including teachers, waste disposal workers, and medical professionals. Which is all bad news for Britain's Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who isn't exactly winning his people over at the moment. Johnson just survived a no-confidence vote that nearly sent him packing, and the rail strikes are another test of his leadership. P.S. He's got reason to be nervous. Historically, strikes in the UK have had a strong influence on turnover in the government. Back in the 70s, a series of strikes ousted the prime minister at the time, called James Callaghan, and made way for Margaret Thatcher to take control of the government. So if these rail strikes continue, or even more unions join in on the walkouts, Johnson might be told to bugger off. How'd we do? Want us to skim a question from the news? Send us your suggestions to audio at theskim.com. This week, we're trying something new. A lot of you have questions about work, how the way we work is changing, what to do when you want to leave your job, and even if you can just relax your office dress code. And we're going to start asking experts to answer them. Meet our new segment, Ask Skim This. You've got mail. You can dial into the number in our show notes and leave us a voicemail. No question is off-limits, and we'll find the experts to break it all down. This week, we got some questions about remote work and whether it's finally coming to an end after two years. So let's get into it. Hi, Skimness. I've been seeing a lot of news recently about CEOs and business leaders cracking down on remote work by making employees go to the office in person. Why are they doing this? And are employees about to lose the leverage they've gained for flexible work over the past two years? If you haven't seen the headlines this listener is talking about, just listen to this. Well, Elon Musk is giving Tesla employees an ultimatum, either return to the office or quit. An email sent to employees, Musk said they need to show up for at least 40 hours of work per week or the company will assume that they have resigned. Some CEOs, including Elon Musk, have made it clear, return to the office or get lost. And according to Vivian Jang, a senior staff editor for The New York Times, these CEOs are digging their heels in now because they weren't really on board with remote work in the first place. 
For them, the pandemic made it necessary. And now it's less necessary. Not to mention, there's been a long-held belief in corporate America that people are most productive when they're at their desk IRL. If you're listening to that and think that view seems old-fashioned, Jang told us it kind of is. The ideal worker, I think, is a very powerful story that comes from this idea that this person only priority is work. They probably have someone taking care of all their meals at home and doing everything else in their lives, right? Where does that come from? That comes from this idea that if you're in the office at a certain time, if you're there before everyone gets there and you leave after everyone leaves, then you care about your job and you care about the company. We know that that's not really realistic for many households today, but it's still a very powerful story and it's very hard for executives to let go of that story because that's how they became an executive themselves is working this way. Even though being totally anti-remote work seems maybe a little close-minded, especially given how much work culture has changed in the past two years, there is a little truth to what these CEOs are thinking. It's kind of thanks to our psychology, because we do associate productivity with seeing people in person. And when we can't see someone grinding away at their desk, it raises questions about how much people are actually working. I teach a class at NYU and during the pandemic, we had some students zoom in and some students who were in the classroom. Sometimes it was very easy for me to forget about the students on Zoom, you know, because they're not there. It's very hard to track someone's commitment if they're not right in front of you. Companies have invested a lot in real estate. Their bottom line is tied to having workers at their desks. So the fact that they can no longer track how employees are working, that's tough for a lot of managers and a lot of executives. But here's the thing. Remote work is not going away. We've heard from so many of you about how remote work has changed your life. You're able to be at home more with your children or attend to sick family members or just save money from commuting. And in fact, flexibility is a top ask from employees. So if companies don't hire or even fire talented people who aren't able to work in person, Jang says that could negatively impact the company's output and might actually backfire on CEOs who want to attract the best talent. The recruiters that I've spoken with have said that flexibility is still the top ask for job seekers. There are people who have other priorities besides work. I know that's really hard to imagine, but you're really going to get a certain type of worker and you're going to miss out on a lot of other types of workers. Traditionally, of course, parents, not just mothers, we're also hearing from fathers that they also want to be more involved in their family's life. And you have people who are caretakers and just have other priorities outside of work. I think that's the majority of us in today's generation. That's something that companies will have to decide if that's what they want to do. Still, if we're going to take out our crystal balls and predict the future of remote work, we've got to take a look at the macroeconomic environment right now. We've all probably heard a version of this at some point over the past two years, that it's a job seekers market and that employees, not their companies, have the upper hand. But the tides do seem to be turning. Some companies are rescinding job offers, like Twitter and Redfin, laying off employees, like Netflix, Peloton, and Coinbase, 
or scaling back hiring plans as the economy seems to be cooling off. And when we look at previous economic downturns, the tug of war between employee and employer was almost always won by the company. But here's what's different this time. Job openings are more than twice as high as they were before the last two recessions, meaning companies still have jobs to fill and can't seem to find people to do it. So knowing that there's still a lot of economic turmoil that's expected and that companies are still trying to find people to work for them, what does that mean for employee leverage around work from home? If we do enter a recession and there are more layoffs, then I don't know how much pushback you can really see from employees if that were to happen. But as things stand now, knowing that flexibility is a top ask for job seekers, then it seems to make sense that there would be pushback if you know employers are requiring that their employees are going back into the office full time. Essentially, more people might have to meet their employer halfway whether that's one day a week or one day a month, but the tug-of-war rope isn't falling totally one way or the other. We've been in this work design for so long now that even if it does revert back to the way things were in some way, I don't know if we can go all the way back there because of some of these companies hiring people from all across the world now. We're also hearing of people who have let go of their apartments and are trying out new cities and seeing if they want to live there one day. So there has just been the shift in the way people live, not just the way they work. So I think it's really, really hard to go 100% back, but we might see some pushback for sure. There you have it. And we're here to get answers to all your other work questions, from planning for parental leave writing a cover letter, or even navigating an office romance. Call and leave us a voicemail with your question at 929-266-4381. We'll also leave the number in our show notes. Ending the show this week by telling you about a certain kind of business trip that's becoming more and more common. I was at a conference in London, the Psych Conference, and over the lunchtime there was a workshop that was titled Psychedelics in the Workplace. And I was like, no, there's no way that this is a thing. That's Natasha Loder, the health policy editor for The Economist. And one visit to a health conference in London confirmed. Tripping with your coworkers is, in fact, a thing. Are you high? I mean, yeah, we've been taking drugs, but I'm very clear. But we don't mean that people are just dropping acid in their cubicles. Rather, company executives are trying to create the ultimate corporate retreat, with the requisite snacks, brainstorming sessions, and mind-altering drugs, including ketamine, ayahuasca, and mushrooms. Safe to say, that probably wasn't in the company-wide email. But what exactly is the point of doing psychedelics in a work context? What I'm hearing from the people who are supplying these experiences is that some leaders feel they need to be more empathetic or, you know, maybe want to generate some ideas. So it's a whole sort of range of things. I mean, it's like the Jack Dorsey effect. You know, you get to this point in your career and you're like, well, what am I doing? And where are my new ideas are coming from? And they 
are looking to sort of explore that. What you've got to remember is that a lot of people who are performing at really high levels are under a lot of stress and you know that creates a sort of certain kind of environment. You can burn out and I suppose in a way psychedelic experience which is a weekend in length is quite attractive if you think about it. It's like well you know am I going to go to a therapist you know week in week out for the next six months to a year or you know, am I going to have a weekend retreat? And then, you know, maybe I can sort of have this experience that will help me kind of reframe myself and feel better about my working life. In fact, a lot of major public figures, including Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, have admitted to using psychedelics before. And the C-suite dipping their toe into the psychedelic pool is reflecting a larger global trend where psychedelics are being studied as an alternative treatment for things like anxiety, depression, and PTSD. Here in the U.S., regulators could approve MDMA, also known as ecstasy, for therapeutic use as soon as next year. And on the recreational side, one look at a music festival can tell you, psychedelics are becoming more mainstream. What we know actually over decades and decades, in fact, in some cases, hundreds of years of experience with psychedelic drugs is that they do sort of induce this period of, let's just say, plasticity in the brain. But if you have a kind of mental health condition, maybe sort of depression or perhaps you're suffering from alcohol misuse disorder, what's kind of going on is that your brain is sort of fixed in more rigid patterns and networks of thought. And taking psychedelics allows you to kind of break out of those, shall we say, handcuffs, at least for a period of time. And that's what you see with ketamine and depression. People take it and they get this instant relief that they don't get from taking traditional therapies. But reminder, C-suite execs aren't doctors. And there are still a lot of unknowns about psychedelics and their effects that have yet to be studied. What I find slightly troubling about this as a health writer is that, you know, it's really blending the sort of therapeutic use with a recreational use. If you sort of, you know, blur the lines, I have a few concerns about that. I guess the questions that we don't really have good answers to are things like, you know, can you just take these drugs and not do the kind of psychiatric work alongside them. I think these questions are going to get resolved in the coming years. There's a lot of interest by biotech companies in pushing these therapies through trials and then obviously having them scrutinized by regulators. But we have to see what the results of those trials are. And we'll have to also see what the FDA thinks about that. Besides these drugs being unregulated and potentially unsafe, there are also a lot of employees who just aren't interested in going on the ultimate business trip and don't want to have these experiences with their coworkers. I think we know already from, I mean, just from our experience of drinking and drinking parties and after work parties, we know that some people can't participate and might complain. Well, you know what? Everyone's going out after work and they're having this drinking culture and I have to go home and I can't participate and I'm missing out on something. Potentially, if you introduce these psychedelic experiences as a form of corporate retreat, then you do face that situation of, you know, being in and being out. 
But, you know, on the other hand, the people who are in certainly do get that experience. Somebody was saying to me, oh, it's a real way of bonding, you know, among your colleagues. And I was like, well, I'm not sure I want that level of bonding. I mean, there is such a thing as too much information. Oh, and one other unintended side effect. You know, if you kind of re-examine your life using these kind of very powerful drugs, you may decide that it's all pointless, right? What you're doing is completely pointless. And, you know, maybe you'll question the nature of capitalism. I mean, this is sort of a really fundamental psychological experience. I spoke to a guy called Keith Fratzi, who's an executive coach, and he is one of the people who takes people on these experiences. And he says he knows of several business founders who quit after having a trip. So clearly, that is one of the outcomes of these experiences, is you may decide that you're doing the wrong thing entirely. So managers, listen up. It might be best to stick to awkward icebreakers during your next offsite and leave the psychedelics behind. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our producer, Will Livingston, and our associate producer, Blake Lou Merwin. This episode was engineered by Ellie McAfee-Hahn and Andrew Calloway, and the Skim's head of audio is Graylin Brashear. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. Until then, check out the other podcasts from the Skim. 9 to 5-ish is where we talk all things career with our founders, Carly and Danielle. And Pop Cultured is our weekly deep dive into the culture stories you can't stop thinking about. Follow 9to5ish and Pop Cultured wherever you're already listening to us.